grabbed me and we got into his Volkswagen Fastback and we drove down Cam Highway. He stopped and blocked the highway and he just folded his arms and he leaned back against his car and he looked down the highway towards Kaneohe where the sheriffs were coming from. I went to Ponaho School here in Honolulu, graduated in 1976. School for me was kind of a waste of time. Where school really happened for me was when I went home every day to my family home in Kahalu on the windward side of Oahu. I learned about this film most likely to succeed, and it just changed the arc of my life in an instant. When that 90 minutes was over, I knew that my life was going to be different. I'd found a way to be involved in the reimagining of education in a way that wasn't didactic and wasn't righteous and wasn't like I had some kind of agenda. We live our lives oftentimes standing on the shoulders of giants. I stand on the shoulders of giants. Real-world learning, real-world challenges, student-driven learning. To me, that's the essence of education. In the teaching at La Pietro is where I found what I was looking for, which is... Greater Good Radio. Connect, learn, heal, and grow. Is brought to you by Brain Gain Hawaii a boutique executive recruiting, career development, and coaching firm. Learn more at BrainGainHI.com. Welcome to Greater Good Radio. Today's guest is Josh Rapun. Josh is the evangelist and host of What School Could Be podcast, former educator of 17 years, and just an all-around interesting and cool guy. So I want to have him on the show. Welcome, Josh. Glad to be here, Evan. How would you explain like who you are and what you're doing Actually, as it turns out, that's a really neat question because I've been thinking a lot lately about what the iterations of life are and can be and will be. And so I'm starting more and more to kind of see my journey as a series of kind of sub journeys in a way. So, you know, I went to Punahou School here in Honolulu, graduated in 1976. School for me was, and no disrespect, Bonahou, but it was kind of a waste of time. Where school really happened for me was when I went home every day to my family home in Kahalu on the windward side of Oahu. That's where my learning playground really was, both the bay, Kanye Bay, and also the time that I spent with my family after I got home from school. So I graduated in 76. I spent a year away. We didn't call it a gap year at that point. But I spent a year working as a dishwasher at Pohainani Retirement Home, where my father was the doctor for that facility. And then I went to University of Oregon for a year. That was another waste of a year in the sense that academically, I really didn't do anything. Spent a lot of time playing rugby and carousing around Oregon. And, you know, long story short, ended up in the Bay Area, and the woman I was dating at the time took me to lunch at the California Culinary Academy in San Francisco, and I knew just like just like that, that that's what I wanted to be, the tall hat, the white coats, the whole thing. And so I became a chef. Later, I left chefing after about 10 years in San Diego and San Francisco and went into hotel management, first in San Diego and then back here in Honolulu for Outrigger. So you can see these iterations of journeys that are like chapters, and I've been thinking a lot about that. So after four years of hotel management, I decided that it was finally time to go get my undergrad or finish my undergrad. 
So I had a really dear friend who I'd met in San Francisco who lived in Iowa. So I decided to go to the University of Iowa and I got my degree there. And then, Evan, I was motivated to learn. And I blew it out of the water. 4.25 GPA, got my degree in history. Wow. And along the way, my wife and I, now my ex-wife and I, had our daughter, Emma, who's just about to turn 32. And so eventually, because we were separating and divorcing while we were living in Iowa, I ended up back here in Hawaii. And so I worked. Then at that point, I knew I wanted to be a teacher. Strange pathway to becoming a teacher. One of the reasons why it happened the way that it did was because I got very frustrated in the College of Education at University of Iowa. I felt like I was being forced to take classes on things that I had been thinking about my whole life up to that point. So I dropped out and just got my history degree. And when I came back, I was just tracking to teach, but I couldn't teach in the public schools because no credential. And so I just made a pest of myself at Punahou as a substitute teacher even went to faculty department meetings as a sub, which was pretty weird. They were all wondering why I was there as a sub. But I talked my way into a job. And so I taught at Punahou and then later at La Pietra Hawaii School for Girls and then later at Iolani, where I started doing a lot of ed tech work in addition to teaching history. And eventually, after 17 years teaching, the next chapter turned out to be working at Apple as a sales specialist at our flagship store here in Hawaii at Alamoana Center. And along that pathway, that's when I learned about this film, Most Likely to Succeed. And it just changed the arc of my life in an instant. I saw it in August of 2015. And when that 90 minutes was over, I knew that my life was not going to be different. And I felt like I had found my muse. I'd found a way to be involved in the reimagining of education in a way that wasn't didactic and wasn't righteous and wasn't like I had some kind of agenda. It was just show the film and build conversations and see where it goes from there. And so here I am today in 2023. I'm an evangelist for what school could be org, which is the what most likely to succeed became. Mm -hmm. And I also have my what school could be podcast, which is three years old now and super stoked to learn a couple of days ago that a national organization, GettingSmart.com, listed me in their top 100 podcasts, number six, actually, which just made my heart jump and 70,000 downloads in over 100 countries. And it feels like this chapter that I'm in right now, I'm really starting to, it's kind of weird to say you're making a difference. It feels a little bit arrogant to say that, but it feels like I'm at a place right now where moving that reimagine education conversation forward is really starting to, um, you know, build energy. It's really starting, it's fueled up. It's getting fueled up by a lot of people. And I feel like I'm making a contribution to the gas that's going into the tank on this. And so that's the kind of long introduction to the various chapters of my life and where I am right now. And I'm just thinking a lot about this these days most especially because my daughter is a teacher, Emma. She lives in Marin County, and she just got engaged. So, you know, you get very reflective in a moment like that. Mm -hmm. And just thinking that as I approach 65 years old in October, life feels good right now. It really does feel good. So, wow. yeah. 
So congratulations on that for yeah, you, with thank your you. daughter. There was a few things in here that I kind of picked up on. Can I ask mm-hmm. you on yeah, that? Yeah, for okay, sure. So when you said Punahou, right? Because I went to Punahou too. Yep. And uh, you said it was waste of time. So like what about it made it a waste of time? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. And again, you know, I think for, I guess I can speak for the entire Rapun Ohana, the family. I can't even count the number of Rapuns that have gone it's through. There's a lot of Rapuns oh, and there's still Rapuns there. There's still, yeah. and there will be for the foreseeable future. I think there's a bit of a love-hate relationship with the school, more or less. And I think it, what it has to do with is, you know, that it's all about engagement, that's the focus of my work right now. How do we engage our young people in joyful learning that's purposeful, that's meaningful, that really taps them into the great problems that need to be solved in the world? And back in the 70s, there were big issues that needed to be solved. And I think when I look back on Punahou, Punahou didn't engage me in that way. It still is, to a certain extent, a traditional school, meaning that kids are tracking towards college. They're taking traditional classes, sage on the stage, delivery of information, memorize, learn. And I'm painting with a broad brush, which is a little uncomfortable because I know that Pono has huge streaks of amazing and innovative work going on on the campus. But for me, back in the in the 70s, the school didn't engage me. And so I felt like I was kind of wandering through that experience without any purpose, except for several really important moments where I really got engaged. And when you talk about whether or not school was a valuable experience, doesn't it really come down to those experiences that you remember, right? Because if you don't really remember the other stuff, I don't remember anything in chemistry class. I really don't remember anything in biology class. M- math, most especially, I don't remember anything. They weren't engaging me in any sort of relevant learning. It was just abstract in a way. But there were three teachers at Punahou who engaged me, four actually, because two of them are team teaching. And those memories are so vivid, Evan. They are so vivid. They get me emotional, even just thinking about it, because those people were special. And I think what was happening is that they were tapping into Josh. They cared about me. They built relationships with me. They knew that I was a thinker, that I loved to make things, because that's what I did after school every day. I made rock walls with my father. I dug trails, I built gardens, I swept monkey pod leaves until the cows came home. It was crazy, like all four seasons, right? All that kind of stuff. They knew about that and they knew how to tap into how much I wanted to make things and do things. You know, now that I'm reflecting on this with you, I'm realizing there was another teacher as well, Hank Fordham, uh, who ran the media department. But anyway, that's kind of my sense of and my answer to your question is I wasn't engaged okay. except for these specific moments, which I'm happy to talk about. So like school as a whole was not engaging you. However, you found kind of your community of practice in those three or four teachers. Yeah. So I would like to actually hear about that in a deep way, if you possibly could, like what moves you now thinking about it? So first of all, and you know what, I'm going to preface this a little bit. Another thing I've been thinking a lot about lately is the idea and since we're talking about yeah. the greater good, right, that we we live our lives 
oftentimes standing on the shoulders of giants. And I stand on the shoulders of giants. And the stories that I would love to tell about what happened at Punahou, those people that I'm going to reference are these giants upon whose shoulders I stand. But I've also been thinking a lot about like the hundred of them upon whose shoulders I stand. And it's an awesome feeling to know that you are the product of the care and compassion and kindness and attention that you got from other people. I think it's just an awesome idea. And I think it's something that we would want to bring into the realm of education is almost that education itself, the curriculum would be, who are my resources? How do I build my life based on my relationships with other people? And how do I contribute to the greater good as a result of what I see in other people and the work that they're doing to build the greater good, right? So that's the preface. So the first person was Paul Doc Berry, who taught a class called, well, among many things, he was the guy who actually developed the economics course at Punahou, which had that outward-facing community service component to it. But that was after I left, yeah. So he taught fiction and film. And that class was amazing to me. I mean, here we were reading these works of fiction, and some of those works were translated into film. And we would study what was the translation from fiction to film. I mean, oh my God, what an idea to be able to do that, right? But, and I still remember watching The Graduate, because that's, you know, I'm not even sure that as a teacher you could get away with showing The Graduate in class these days. But Doc, Doc was like no holds barred. But anyway... I think what really mattered with Doc was that he wanted us to do something in the class, not just be academic, not just study these relationships between fiction and film, but he wanted us to do a project. So it's really the very first example, Evan, of project-based learning, where Doc assigned a project, and basically the project was, you got to make a film, and that film has to tell a story, and hopefully that story is going to come from words that were written somewhere, right? So I just remember when we got to the end of the class and you have our exhibitions of our projects, right? There were so many of my peers who'd been, who were like, you know, my film is going to be, I'm going to go get my friend. We're going to drive to the top of Tantalus. I'm going to skateboard down and they're going to film me, you know, with a super eight camera. And that's going to be my film. And I was like, "Mm, (laughs) that doesn't quite fit the criteria for me. So the weird geeky kid that I was, I took a James Thurber fable called The Unicorn in the Garden, and I brought it to life on film. And so it tells the story of this guy who wakes up one morning and sees a unicorn in the garden. Long story short, he gets all excited, tells his wife. His wife thinks he's nuts. She wants to get rid of him anyway. And so she uses the moment to call the guys in the white coats to come get him and take him away. But turns out they see the unicorn, and so they end up picking her away, right? It's a beautiful fable. It's awesome. So I used my brothers as my actors. My brother's horse became the unicorn. We made a cone and attached it to the horse's nose. We used my brother's farm jeep. They were all farming in Waiholi at that point. And we brought that story to life in Kahalu at my house. And I still have that film, converted it ultimately to CD, and then converted the CD to DVD. And now I think it exists on the web. I think I have it there. And the best part, I know that sounds crazy to say this, but the best part was I wanted to score the film. So this is how deep Doc took me into the translation 
of words to film. And so I thought that it would be really cool in that moment because essentially it's a silent film. And I was hugely influenced by Charlie Chaplin and, and Laurel and Hardy and all that. So the influences were there. And so I went out, I don't even know how I did this because this was 40 years ago, more. I went out and found a pianist who came into class on the day that I presented my film and he scored it live. Like we used to go to the Cinerama Theater and you would hear the pianist playing, right? So it was honky-tonk. So he scored it with a honky-tonk score and Doc went into orbit. And that was my greatest, hands down, greatest learning moment of all time. And it's because of him. It's because of Doc. Doc knew, I think, intrinsically that if I were given that opportunity, I would seize it and run with it. And Doc ended up being a lifelong friend and mentor and guide and coach all the way up until the day he died just a few years ago. And I think that's really what teaching and learning is all about. His belief in me, his reaction to what I'd done, and then we took that as a cue to be friends for the rest of our of his life and you know he's a giant upon whose shoulders i stand you said it was the biggest teaching moment of your life how would you describe in a nutshell like the takeaway the teaching that you learned from that i think the way to answer that is so my wife cheryl onsi just retired as hawaii business publisher hawaii business magazine i was very blessed one of the silver linings of the COVID lockdown was that she had to come home and work from home. And I got a front row seat for three years of how you run a publishing business. It was beautiful, Evan, just beautiful watching her do that work. So about a month into her job, into that job, she came home one day and, you know, when she took the job, you know how publishing works, right? There are many editions of the magazine that are already in the works when you come on as a publisher. That's true for any publisher. And so she didn't have any control over those previous but future editions of the magazine that were going to come out. So as soon as she came on the job, she started working on her first edition, but it would take a few months for that to actually surface as a printed copy. So I came home one day from my work at Apple and she was sitting on the couch and she was holding the magazine in her hand. And she looked up at me with this big smile on her face and she said, look, I made this. And that was the first time in her life because she spent 30 plus years in TV advertising, which is just mega spreadsheets to the max on screens. And right. So she was holding it and this was this tangible physical thing. And she said, I made this. And in that moment, I a hundred percent knew what she meant because when I made that film back in 1975, that was my moment as well. That's what, that's the gift that Doc Berry gave me was the opportunity to do something that was inside of me for sure, for sure, to bring it out, to use all of these actors in my life, including the horse and the Jeep to actually bring that story to life and then to present it as a thing that I made that actually exists on at that time while it was super eight. So it was, I had to show it on a super eight projector in class and the score of the film. So to me, that's the essence of education. I spent my whole teaching career 
trying to figure out how to help my history students be historians. I did not want to take off the top of their head, fill them up with a bunch of history information they would forget in a month, and then send them on their way as if somehow I had done something important. What I wanted to do was to train them to be a historian. You know, historians write books. How do you do the research, et cetera, et cetera, right? So in a way, the gift that Doc gave me was the opportunity to be a filmmaker, to be a storyteller, to be a musical score director, that kind of thing. And I did not realize at the time what the connect the dots would be. You know, yesterday at the Hawaii Business Leadership Conference, Guy Kawasaki talked about connecting the dots. I get chicken skin goosebumps thinking about the idea that way back then in making that film, you can now connect a dot from 1974 to 2016 when I actually made my first documentary film with Kelsey Matsu here in Hawaii that documented my patron Ted Dittrich's first trip to Hawaii. And then I made another film after that with Sea Rider Productions. We co-produced it, co-directed it. The student shot it. It's called the Innovation Playlist. These are all products. These are things that you make, but it's a series of iterations that happen over the course of a life, including the podcast, right? I could sit down at some point after Ryan and Ozawa and I first built a podcast, the first episode, and say, I made this just like Cheryl did. There's something really special about that. If you, if you work to be a chemist, if you work to be a biologist, if you work to be a marine biologist or be an artist or be a historian or be a writer, it's the B means you're going to make something. That's what it means in my mind. And I think if education were more about the being and less about the receiving of information, then we're, we're on our way. Yeah. Sorry, kind of a little bit convoluted answer, but I just want to express how meaningful it was that Doc gave me that opportunity to make something. In addition to that, I had a relationship with the media director at Punahou, and he was an epic maker as well because he's the guy who invented Punahou TV, Punavision. And I got to hanging around with him. And together, we did a whole production on jazz music that we shot live with my cousin Ricky's jazz band in McNeil Hall with the RV that he bought for the campus that he turned into a remote studio, right? And so again, another example of where I got to make things. And those are the memories that I hold really dear about Punahou. Those were the connections that I made. Yeah. If you could say something to Doc Berry now, yeah. What would you tell him? Oh, just heaps and heaps of gratitude for that opportunity that he gave for me. But the cool thing, Evan, is there's two ways of looking at that question, your awesome question. One is like, I had this teacher and it was 40 years ago. And if I saw him again, you know, which means, which implies that I have not seen him since, then I would say certain things to him or I would express my gratitude. What Doc and I did was we built a lifelong relationship together. So I don't need to actually even answer that question because I expressed that gratitude to him a thousand times in all the coffee sessions that we had just down the road here at Manoa Marketplace. We used to park outside coffee bean and tea leaf down there. And he was such a funny guy and we would drink coffee and we would talk about the world and about teaching and everything. And even better, I got to go back to Punahou and teach with him. 
And that was really special to come back and teach with him. So just heaps of gratitude. If I got to see him maybe in the afterlife, if there is one, you know, that's what I'd tell Doc is like, dude, you, you made it happen for me. You gave me that opportunity and it changed the arc of my life. Maybe that's the answer. Gratitude plus how cool is it that you can tell somebody, wow, you changed the arc of my life for the better, for the greater, for the good. Yeah. Back to the other teachers then. Yeah. So Gordy Dolinar and Art Bowen taught history. And I think that's where my love of history began. So I'd had previous history teachers. I remember Evan, I used to sit in the Punahou library, read the textbook, and I would sit in the library with the textbook up vertical, and I would sleep behind the textbook in study hall because I had no connection to the textbook, right? And then I got Art and Gordy in U.S. history in my junior year. And they did something brilliant, which is they assumed that if you give students the opportunity to choose what they wanted to read, A, and then B, if you give them the opportunity to tap into the secondary sources. So just for a second, for those who might be you know, listening, watching, in, in history, there's two kinds of sources, the primary source, so a letter that you might write to me, secondary source, which is I use that letter to write a biography of you. And so they said, what would happen if we gave students the opportunity to dig into the secondary sources, all the great books of history that have been written, but we'll do it on a point system. So we'll give them points based on certain criteria related to the book, how long it was, how deep it was, how complex it was, and so on. And then all we had to do was read the book, and then we had to do an oral defense in front of them. So I had to book time with Gordy and Art, sit down in front of them, and defend my understanding of that book. So I remember that I was sitting in their office, their combined office, and I said, well, I don't know, where do I even start? What books? And they pointed up to the bookshelf that was in their office. And there were like a thousand books up there. And I just looked up there and I was like, oh, and they said, get up and go take a look. And I got up and I ran my fingers over these books. And I stopped on this one book, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee. And I pulled that book out and I said, I'm going to do this one first. I tore through that book. That book changed my life. It changed my whole perception of what U.S. history is. And I read it, and I defended my understanding of it, and then I was on my way. And I racked up a bajillion points in that class, and I got an A. What did that book teach you? Like, what, what is the book about? If you read a textbook of American history, and this is something I struggled with for my whole teaching career, because at Punahou, when I taught at Punahou, La Pietra, and at Ilani, it was required to use these textbooks. I didn't like them, but I had to use them. And what textbooks do is they take all the work away from the student. And they say, here's the story, memorize it, essentially, and then spit it back out on a test. And to a certain extent, you can engage the kids in some critical thinking about it. But that's really what textbook learning is. It's efficiency. It's factory. It's Let's move kids through using the same text and the same understanding of U.S. history as much as we possibly can because we don't have time for anything else. So Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee blew me out of the water because all of a sudden the textbook story 
of America's relationship with First Peoples, with indigenous peoples in America, that story went out the window. And I realized in a heartbeat, which is essentially the, the time it took me to read that book, which was only a couple of days, I remember. I remember I just tore through it. I just thought to myself, okay, if the textbook story about this subject, which is the relationship between America and First Peoples, if this story is very different from what a textbook presents, then what are the other stories that are different? And I recall that that was kind of my approach as I started selecting books from the bookshelf to start to read. And, you know, Evan, at that point in my family home in Kahalu, my mom and dad's family, which is the seven kids that are Dr. Fred Rapoon and Jean Rapoon's kids, me being the youngest, my sister Martha's the oldest and the five brothers that I have, we had hundreds of books in the house and we were all readers. I remember when I first read Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit, it just, that one was incredible. Then with Gordian art, I started to realize that there were books everywhere in the house and that somehow there was like, depending on the choice, there was magic that could happen. So around the same time, I discovered the works of Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who's this dissident Russian writer who was imprisoned in a gulag for a good part of his life. And he kept fighting and fighting the Soviet Union and everything that was happening. I tore through all of his books. So you can see a theme that's emerging, right? Where the stories that would rock my world or, or my understanding of what the world is. And then it was just like off to the races. It's like, how much time is there to read all these books and still do the things that I love to do, play basketball, build rock walls, do trails, all that kind of stuff. And you, and maybe this kind of circles back to why Punahou felt a little bit like a waste, except for these discrete moments where I was really engaged. Because you can imagine me going off to math class where I'm being taught you know, algebra and I have no idea in the world why algebra matters. I still don't, by the way. I'll go into the ring with anybody about the worthiness of algebra in life. And I just feel like, A, I lost a good part of my life in the process of not learning, of being disengaged and being bored. And also, what's the opportunity cost that we can look at there? What could I have been doing in those hours that I spent in algebra completely disengaged and no idea why I was there? And pretty much every other class that was happening that way. So... What Gordian Art did was they engaged me, albeit through a sneaky kind of competitive process, like how many points can I actually rack up reading these books? But the magic, they knew the magic was going to happen. The points became an object for sure, and it's what got me the A. But what was really happening was Josh was being educated by all the secondary sources that he was staring through. And I just... if. Take your same question, like if Art and Gordy were here in the room, what would I say to them? I'd be like, dudes, thank you. You you did a magic thing for me. There's one other teacher, Roger Pfeffer, taught marine biology at Punahou for a long time. Yeah, Dr. <clears throat> Pfeffer. Dr. Pfeffer. Mm -hmm. Oof, boy, that guy was a complex character, a character in every way, shape, and form. Still There's, around. Still around. Yeah. I saw him at a Simon place like last year, mm -hmm. was amazed to see him. And so in the marine biology class that I took, you know, again, the traditional approach would have been textbook, learn, quote unquote, air quotes, marine biology, absorb it, but probably not remember it. So 
what Roger was all about, Dr. Pfeffer, was about projects. So you can see that theme emerging here. Like even reading for Gordy and art was almost like project-based learning because I was the project. It was the education of Josh in American history and world history, as it turned out, because all the books I was reading at my dad's house. So when Roger said, okay, you're going to do a project, that happened to coincide at a very precise moment when my brothers had come back from college. They had become farmers in first Waihei and then Waihole and Waikane Valleys. And so they were around as I was finishing high school, which is kind of magic to have family come back, brothers come back, right? They're Harvard trained. Harvard trained. Like Paul went to Harvard, got his degree in biology and Russian studies. Charlie got his degree from Hamilton College in literature. John got his degree from Hamilton in literature. Like they did the thing. And here they are back farming, but they're not just farmers. They're like Harvard educated farmers, right? There's this beautiful film, by the way, that you can see on YouTube that was made by a Molokai, a young Molokai filmmaker. I think his name is Mitch Yamasaki. And it's 23 minutes long. And it's about Charlie and Paul explaining the biology and chemistry of organic farming. I've seen it. It's beautiful. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Like it's a treatise on what it takes to make soil rich. And it's a beautiful metaphor for education as well. Because that's what educators could be doing. That's what school could be, is actually creating organic soil so the plants will grow. Anyway, back to Roger, (laughs) Dr. Pfeffer. So he assigns a project. Turns out that at that very moment, I had learned that Kaneohe Bay was under siege from invasive algae because sewage, secondary treated sewage, was being pumped into the bay. And it was causing the nitrogen levels in the water to come so high that these algae blooms would happen. And all of those beautiful mushroom reefs all inside the sandbar were all covered in this bubble algae, and it was killing everything there. So I told Dr. Pfeffer, my project is going to be, I'm going to clean one of those reefs completely. I couldn't do anything about the sewage, obviously, and later that would be corrected There was some sort of consent decree about that. And then the pipeline was sent like three miles out and it's tertiary now. And so the bay has come back, but that was many, many years later. So my brother Paul and I, we got our family rowboat. Strange thing, a rowboat, you know. For the Hawaiians, it's always about paddling forward. For Europeans, it was about paddling backwards, which is so weird when you think about it. Anyway, we had a rowboat. And so Paul and I took the rowboat out to this one reef. And on this particular day, our goal was to clean the whole reef, to remove all the bubble algae. Huge aspiration, totally nutty aspiration. We got through like seven hours of cleaning and we'd only done a patch, like maybe eight feet by eight feet. It was crazy. We had no idea the scope of the problem, but something magical happened there, Evan. So we didn't just pull the algae off the reef and just let it float down to the bottom. We actually surfaced it and put it into the rowboat. And so we eventually gave up. It was like, we can't, we can't do this. So we got up into the boat and the boat's filled with algae. And so we're like, oh, well, we can't take all this algae. And so we dumped the algae over the side of the boat out in the open water. And what we discovered underneath were millions of tiny little creatures, little shrimps, little fishes, all kinds of 
little creatures that had been living in the algae and had, had essentially dropped down into the bottom of the boat that was partially filled with water. And I remember looking at this and I was making all these connections to marine biology, right? And I thought, wow, this is amazing that these critters are all down here. So my dad had a 50-gallon fish tank that was kind of rusting away underneath the house. And so my brother Paul and I, we were like, let's make the fish tank come alive. And we've got the first critters that can go into this ecosystem. So we rode home with all the critters. We went and got buckets. We dumped all the water out of the boat with the critters into the buckets, and we took the buckets home. We pulled the old fish tank. 50 gallons is huge, you know. We pulled it out. We sanded it all down. We painted it. We got it ready. We went out to Kulo. We got a bunch of sand in buckets. We came home. We put sand in the bottom, but no filtration system, no aeration system of any kind. And we essentially filled it up with seawater and then dumped the buckets with all the critters into it. And there we were, right? And then at that point, I took over the project because Paul was living up at the farm. So I started diving in the bay and I started collecting creatures in the bay. Spanish dancers, exotic fish, banded coral shrimp, got my finger partially bit off because I was sticking my finger up inside a hole in a reef trying to get a banded coral shrimp and there was a moray eel under there and it took a whack at me, you know, that kind of thing. So I started bringing these creatures home and I started adding them to the tank and I had a light on it so I could watch what they were doing at night. It was just an amazing thing. It was, I was being a marine biologist. So there's a punchline to this story, which is no filtration, no aeration in the tank. What I realized pretty early is that all those early critters were my sanitation crew. They took care of all of the, essentially the effluent that came out of all of the fish and the Spanish dancers and and the slugs and everything else that I put in there. So they took care of the tank. And what started to emerge out of the mist here in my brain and in brain biology was I was creating an ecosystem from the ground up. And then... After many months of working on this project, I collected this one particular kind of slug out in the bay. And I remember I was super excited and I brought it home and I put it in the tank and watched it move around. And then, you know, night came and I went to sleep and I woke up in the morning. The whole tank was dead, 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 dead. And I was stunned. And I realized that I had added one too many creatures to the ecosystem And that lesson has never left my mind and my heart because that was a horrible moment. Like I'd get my brothers and dump the tank out over the deck onto the grass down below. That was it. The whole ecosystem was dead. If that's not a metaphor for where we're at right now with climate change, I don't know what is. And who do I credit for that? Dr. Roger Pfeffer. Because he just stepped out of the way and became my guide and coach and mentor. He wasn't teaching me anything. He was just giving me an opportunity to learn. And I took that rope and I just ran with it as far as I could. So do I know what ecological systems are? Yes. Do I know how ecology is actually a metaphor for awesome classroom environments? Absolutely. Absolutely. So these, if you take, you know, Doc Berry and Art and Gordy and Dr. Pfeffer, and you put them all together, 
they just represent these giants upon whose shoulders I stand. I'm forever grateful to them because they've given me a way of understanding the world that I would never have had if I just trudged my way through all the classes and just tried to memorize the information. So on like a scale of zero to 10, 10 being high, their influence on your life, what number? Oh, 15. Beyond. Huge. And I think that's, you know, not too long ago, I'm blessed to occupy several positions right now, one of which is I serve on a, a program advisory committee for Teach for America Hawaii, and it's super fun. I'm with Dr. Scott, Punahou's former president, and Mahi, who's longtime DOE, now executive director of HSTA, Hawaii State Teachers Association, and some other folks as well. And Joe Baltimore is my classmate too. Yes. Yeah. Awesome to work with her and, and Melan and Josh and all those folks at TFA Hawaii. And so we did an event with a bunch of principals and vice principals where we had an opportunity just to talk to them. And I felt almost abashed because, you know, to be there with Jim with all of his years of experience and everybody else who was in the room. So each of us got like 10 minutes to kind of talk to these folks about something that's very much on our minds about leadership. It's about building capacity for leadership. And when it came my turn, I, thankfully I went last. I talked about this concept of standing on the shoulders of giants. And what I was able to say it, with a few stories, albeit you know, shorter than what we were doing today to explain to them that my life is a series of moments where these individuals have guided and coached and mentored and sponsored me. And by sponsored, I mean, they've opened doors for me in ways that I will be forever grateful for. And it was interesting that each of these school leaders really responded to that idea that they started thinking about, oh, who are all these people who are my giants upon whose shoulders I stand. And so that's why I say 15 on a scale of one to 10, because I can't give them enough credit for what they've done. I just can't. In the beginning, because I noticed this, it was like school was a waste of my time, but it's really more just the subject matter being stuffed on your throat yep. that you didn't really resonate with. Yep. And the that other chunk was actually super important and meaningful yeah. to you. Do you think you would have had a similar experience going to a different school? Wow, that's a great question. <laughs> because the work that I'm doing right now as an evangelist for What School Could Be and as the host of the What School Could Be podcast, now 110 episodes into this project, is essentially elevating the stories of those places where young Josh Rapoon would have had a field day. For example, I did an episode with Chad Carlson, who's one of the founding faculty members at a, at a small charter school in Boise, Idaho, called One Stone. This place is extraordinary. It's essentially run by the students. The board of trustees has 15 seats. 12 of those 15 seats are occupied by students. Imagine that, that your school would be run like that. Had I been given an opportunity to serve in that position, the learning curve for me would have been huge. And I think maybe now you're getting me... Well, you, more like in 1970-ish, you know, 60s or so on. Well, could there have been what a place was, back then? No, just what's here and what's now. Yeah. If you're alternative, would you have chosen an alternative? Like you could have gone yeah. to Roosevelt or, you know, gone to Castle or something. You know what I mean? Like, 
Oh, if, we're, if we're connecting the past and the present. Yeah, because I, I have a similar, it's like, wow, yeah. this were a waste of my time in this one. But was there a better alternative or not really? Like, oh, no, no, there's a better alternative mm, for sure. At the time? So had it existed at the time, if I'm understanding you're correct, yeah, you, it had to be existing at the time. At the time, I think that my my dodgy answer to that question would be that there had to be elements at Punahou, at Marinol, at Mid Pacific, at Ilani, and at a number of public schools. Charter schools didn't exist back then. Had I been able to cobble those things together, that I could travel to those different locations to get X over here and no, Y over here, stay, like just at one. If like I had normal, to be, like you know, what I mean, oh, you know, no, like right. normal. There, as far as I know, there was not a single school yeah. at that point that was pushing the envelope the way that we see schools today. So the only way I would have gotten it if if, if we take this current twenty twenty three innovative idea of I can go pick and choose where I'm going to go get what I need because I can't find yeah. one place that gives me everything that I need. Yeah. Yeah. So that, no, that, that thing's so restrictive. I kind of was thinking the same similar piece because I hobbled my way through Punahou school. They never would have let me in after kindergarten. I mean, my sister was the valedictorian and student athlete of the year for the state, you yeah. know, got her master's and PhD at Stanford and I hobbled out there. And I remember just before my senior year, I asked, I told my mom, I said, don't worry, mom, I'm just going to drop out because I'm going to save you money. And she was like, I will kill you yeah. if you do that. I did not pay for this and so on for this long. And I, was, I thought I was doing her a favor and, or maybe I was copying out because it was hard for me. But then when I look back on it, I'm like, well, what would have been my alternative? Mm. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I can't remember too much in my actual classes. My best friends come from there. Mm. Some of my, my best experiences, it, you know, I feel you on that. Like you have like some parts you really didn't, mm, like and then some it's like you know what i would not be Hmm. who i am without it i think i have an answer to your question Mm -hmm. actually you've prompted me to remember so when i finished punahou as i described i spent that year working as a dishwasher and that was a tremendously informative experience doing that kind of work but during that year the atherton botanical gardens on koi came onto my radar screen And I remember thinking, wow, that's what I want to be. This is way before San Francisco, before being a chef, all that kind of stuff. Because that we lived on 3.42 acres of property in Kahalu. And I think my dad wanted us all, we all participated in the landscaping of that property. That's kind of what I was thinking about doing. So if Atherton Botanical Gardens, which had a post-secondary program that I could have gone to, and I almost did, boy, that would have changed the arc of my life. Had that existed as like grades seven through 12 context, that would have been the school. Mm -hmm. I would have been immersed in something that I love to do, which is landscaping, but it also would have given me the freedom to pursue any sorts of academic types of studies that I wanted to do. Would you have given up your experiences with those other teachers that you have today? No. You know what I mean? You have to give that up. Oh, that's the other one. Is that the, that's the trade-off. So would you do it? That's a hard, no, no, I wouldn't give it up. That's the paradox. That's the deeper part of that conversation is I kind of had to go through it to get to those, to get my connection to those individual teachers for sure. 
Yeah, that's why they mean so much to me, because I really, to say that I would not give that up, I mean, you're talking about hundreds of hours of time and tremendous opportunity costs for me personally, all that other stuff that was going on at Punahou, but I would still go through it yeah. if only to be with them. They're that special. To me. You also think that maybe it's because those teachers in particular kind of saw you for you yeah. and allowed you to express yourself and be who you are. Yes. Versus trying to shove you, you know, and, you know, Josh, you should be an engineer or something, you know sure. what I mean? And go and do all the math because that's what I th think you should be. Yeah, absolutely. Most especially Doc, mm -hmm. because I think what Doc saw was when we talk about being different, you know, back then it has sort of had, maybe it still does today, a kind of negative connotation to it, but Today, we think more in terms of like this kid's different in the sense of they see things or they feel things differently. And so let's work with that difference and see where it goes with them. Personalized, differentiated, individualized learning. Doc saw that way before we even had the words that we use today to define that kind of thing. He saw that my differences my nerdiness, my geekiness was very much related to the way that I was raised on the 3.42 acres and the extent to which the maker Josh was inside. Maybe one way to look at it, you know, we all kind of know the story of, of Michelangelo, the painter and the sculptor, sort of famously taking a block of marble and seeing the David inside of it. And his job, as he described it, was to just take the, the marble away and to free the David out of it. It already existed. I see Doc as seeing me in that way, that he saw a David inside there, and he just had to figure out the different ways to remove the marble so that I could come out. So what did that mean? It meant giving me a project to work on. And then I just ran with it. What did he do along the way? He helped me to understand how to translate James Thurber's fable, The Unicorn in the Garden, into an actual story that was on screen, if you will. His role as a guide and as a mentor and a coach in that were critical to that process. But he stayed with me through that process because he knew that what I was working on was actually bringing my own David out of that block. So it kind of works like one level on top of another there. And I think us as educators, if we think of kids in that way, that somehow, you know, I just did an episode with a young woman, Serena Lividay, who's a computer science teacher at Dreamhouse Academy in Eva Beach, which is a remarkable charter school whose twin pillars are identity and leadership. You got to develop your identity and you develop your leadership, but they have to go together, right? You can't be a great leader without really having a strong sense of your own identity. And she teaches computer science. I read out loud in one of my questions to her course syllabus description, which starts with the opening sentence, and you are the student, Evan. You, Evan, are a computer scientist. My job is to help bring that out of you. So if that's who we are as educators, and what kind of a life could we all be living if we each saw each other as blocks of marble and that there's some, some very special David on the inside and that our work is just simply to help kind of chip away so that that beautiful thing can emerge. What if you're not a computer scientist inside though? 
you still have the opportunity to go through. The door is open to you. Mm. The door is not closed. Because if you start out saying you're going to learn computer science, mm. the door's closed to me now. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure I find that relevant. Like, I don't know. I don't know if that's what I want to be. But if I'm told I am going to, I am a computer scientist, mm. I can choose whether or not to embrace that or ignore that. But it's a different pathway when I go through learning. So Doc saw in me, you are a filmmaker. And then he helped me become a filmmaker. I am not primarily a filmmaker, but I've made some films now. And I'm very proud of that. Um, are you Hawaiian? We're German and Welsh. Oh. And we're escapees from the Russian Revolution. So my grandfather and grandmother, she was Welsh. He was German, Latvian German. They were in Russia at the time working. Mm. He is a doctor and she is a, as a governess when the Russian revolution broke out and they fled. And that very long and complicated story ultimately results in them arriving in Hawaii, August 8th, 1918. That date just passed a couple of years ago, a few years ago. Unfortunately, we were in the middle of the COVID lockdown and couldn't celebrate it the way that we wanted to. We had to do a Zoom call. Mm -hmm. But it was a pretty remarkable thing to realize that the, the Rapun family had been in Hawaii a hundred years now, uh, more than a hundred years. But there's no no Hawaiian ancestry. But I think, you know, it's funny. I was thinking ab I always about you folks is like Native Hawaiians because you mm -hmm. do, you know, they have the lo'i, you have all these. You know what I mean? Right, right. And in fact, over the years, it has often been the case where people are like, "Oh, you guys are Hawaiian, or you're Portuguese, or you know, something like that." And it's like, "Nope, nope, that's not who we are." And I wondered where that question came from so often. I was thinking before today, you know, again, along this theme of on the shoulders of giants, that my brothers, John and Charlie and Paul, who farm Kalo and other crops up in the back of Waiholi Valley, they're also giants upon whose shoulders I stand. They have farmed in the ancient Hawaiian way for almost 50 years now. It's wild that it's been that long. And I think to some extent, there have been moments of tension about the fact that they do farm in the ancient Hawaiian way, even though they have no Hawaiian ancestry. So over the years, I, I, I kind of laugh tension at... from who? Th within themselves or like From others? the community, mm. right? And that, that sometimes when you walk in that pathway or in those shoes... There can be resentments mm. about the mm. fact that you're doing it in a way that's almost as pure or more pure than Native Hawaiians who are farming in the same way. There have been some tensions, and I don't know a lot mm. about that because I'm not the farmer. I call myself the non-dirt rapoon. I live on the urban side over here in Honolulu, and everything's concrete for me. But I did grow up in middle school and high school working with them as they first began farming. Mm -hmm. And... To watch them do what they do in that style, in that super ancient Hawaiian way with the, with the whole flow of the farm and the Hawaii and the way that they built the structures and the fact that they're off the grid and that everything is solar and then it's all sustainable and such honoring of ancient crops and all of that. To me, it's just, I just admire them so much. And of the three of them, obviously, Charlie and Paul are just, I think, remarkable farmers. John is more the community organizer. He hasn't been as much of the farmer as those other two. 
John is a shoulder, is a giant upon whose shoulders I stand because his work in the community has been partly about developing a Rolodex. And I think his Rolodex is as giant as anybody I know on earth. And I aspire to developing that Rolodex. It's really cool to get to know people and not just get cards in the Rolodex for the sake of having more cards, but actually really getting to know the people who are in your Rolodex. And when you sit John down- LinkedIn probably or something, right? Yes. People might be listening like, what is a Rolodex? Oh, yeah, right, 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 right. Josh, like- Sorry, yeah. we're talking about cassette decks Back in and the day, things like you that. Had, yeah. You put the cards in this thing that spins and that's how you see who your, oh your, your contacts are. That's yeah. too funny. Yes. Yeah. So John's Rolodex is- a community organizer's Rolodex. And I just have huge admiration for the way that he's built it. And what I mean by that is that he's done it firmly with a lot of determination, a lot of fight when the fight needed to happen, but he's done it with kindness and compassion. And that's the beautiful thing about John is that when you sit down and talk to him, it's never confrontational, but if he sees something that he feels really has to be protected, he's going to fight like hell to protect it. If we go back to the 70s. Yeah. 70s was a heightened sense of like Hawaiian Renaissance, right? Correct. Enough is enough. Correct. You can't, you strip our language, you strip our customs, you strip our culture. That's enough. Correct. So it's being forced into a box and not seeing any David in a marble. It's saying you're going to be whatever I want you to be. That's why I was right. wondering, like, could that unrest of the time, as well as maybe if you had that in your in your bloodline and so on, that that also contributed to do not shove this subjects down my throat that I'm not meant to be, and I want to, but I fully embrace these other areas. That's where I was kind of going with it. So yep. then let me turn it yeah, back that's over to actually, you and, and let's see. That's an awesome connection. I'm realizing because of your preamble here that. Everything that was happening to me with Doc and Gordy and Art and Dr. Pfeffer, it was happening in the context of that Hawaiian Renaissance. And it was more importantly happening in the context of the great fight over Waiholi Valley, which unfolded during the 70s um, and ultimately came to an end because a visionary governor in this particular context, George Ariyoshi, stepped in and bought the valley from Elizabeth McCandless for $6 million. Wow, chump change now. And essentially turned it into an agricultural park. But the the decades of fight that went into that were enormous. And that was all at its boiling point when I was at Punahou from grade seven. Yeah, so you're 12. sitting right in it. Sitting you're in the middle of it. it. You're in the middle of it. Everyone's involved with it. That tension, that that energy is surrounding it. And then you go to school and saying, you're going to force stuff on me that I'm not. Right. You know what I mean? It's like, no. Yeah. I can tell you a specific story that has huge meaning to me. I think that's one of the themes that's emerging out of this is that which I remember is that which is what I was really fully engaged in. So I wasn't an active participant in the fight to save Waiholi Valley because I was going to school and all of that stuff, right? But I was very aware of it. It was the topic of conversation at the dinner table every night. And slowly but surely, my father got involved in it. So Dr. you know, Fred Rapun, 60 years in practice, Lanai, Molokai, and then eventually Kaneohe, 
And so as a community activist and organizer, in addition to being a doctor, you know, he was a really important player in that process. And there was a lot of respect directed towards him, which is very meaningful to me. So there was this one night, Evan, when, you know, this is so funny, it's like Rolodex. Back in the day when we had the landline, and before we even had those like wonder phones where you could have two calls at the same time and that kind of thing. So us folks, us boys and my sister, we couldn't be on the phone because if a call came in from my father and he found out that we were on the phone and we ignored that call, who would catch hell from him. And so one night, I think it was like 10 o'clock at night or something like that, call comes in and my dad answers the phone out in the living room and he doesn't say a whole lot. And he's like, okay, thank you very much. And he puts the phone down. And only I was at home at that point. I think my brothers were in Waihole. They were already living in Waihole at that point. So the call that came in was actually from somebody who was a friend of his in the sheriff's department who alerted him that to the fact that the sheriffs were on their way from town to come deliver the eviction notices in the middle of the night to the people in the valley and if those eviction notices got delivered, then, then the story was over, right? And so my dad grabbed me, and we got into his Volkswagen Fastback, and we drove down Cam Highway until we got to this one bottleneck point that's right by Hakipoo. And he stopped and blocked the highway with his car. And he got out. He just turned left and blocked the highway. And he got out, and he folded his arms and he had this, you know, big shock of silver hair and he was already in his like late sixties at that point. And he just folded his arms and he leaned back against his car and he looked down the highway towards Kaneohe where the sheriffs were coming from. And you could see their lights coming down the highway and they stopped way like hundred yards in the distance. And he just kept looking and looking and pretty soon they turned around and left. So he essentially prevented that moment from happening. And I'm this young boy standing there in the dark on the side of the road, watching this unfold. Oh my God. I mean, yes, Evan, you are right. The context for everything that was happening for me at that moment, that's one of those incredible stories. And so for me to go to school and to try to memorize information that had no relevance to me that Punahou wasn't connecting with me in the world that I lived in, which isn't to say that every kid has some kind of crazy dramatic story like that. But schools today, to a much greater extent, are working to figure out what's going on in their students' lives and to connect to those lives. And that's the work that I'm doing as an evangelist for this organization, whatschoolcouldbe.org, because that's what we're all about is what we call real-world learning, real-world challenges, student-driven learning, and all that. But you're right. That The other really awesome story from that time, which is, I don't talk about it too much, but it's a point of beauty for me, is that there was this moment when my brothers, Charlie and Paul and John and David, um, we heard that there was a canoe being built kind of in the how tree out at Kualoa. And so we went out to take a look. <laughs> it was Hokulea. And we didn't know what was happening out there, what Herb Kane and the rest were doing. This was all pre-Nainoa Thompson, by the way. And so we went out there, and it turned out that we walked directly into the launch 
of the canoe for the very first time. So we're on the beach at Kualoa. There was a big thing happening at that moment. And if you look online, you can actually see some grainy videos of this. And then there was this beautiful moment when the builders and the community elders who were assembled and all the protocols that were going through, they came to this moment where they invited the community to come get on the ropes to help pull Hokulea into the water for the first time. I was a sophomore in high school. I was on the ropes. Wow. I can't even believe that I was there at that moment. What a, the gods were looking down on me. What a privilege to be there for that moment. Did I have any idea what was happening? Not really. Did I know what was going to happen with Hokulea over the decades ahead? Not really, but it was all part and parcel of the Hawaiian Renaissance that was unfolding. And yes, on the one side, there was the negative part, which is beautifully captured, by the way, in a film by Elizabeth Lindsay, I think her name is, it's called, And Then There Were None, which talks about the ways that disease and other factors decimated the Hawaiian population. But then there's the positive side, which is the emergence of music, the emergence of language, the Center for Hawaiian Studies, everything that was happening that was this renaissance, that was the context of my life outside of school. And it was hugely informative for me. That's how it was all unfolding at the time. My dad knew George Helm really well. The family went into 911 mode when we found out that he was lost. My dad was devastated by that, you know, those kinds of stories, and especially with our connection to Molokai and to Lanai as well. So this kind of circles back to what you were talking about earlier, no Hawaiian ancestry in the family, but a connection in a way that I think is deeply respectful to the history of Hawaii and all of that. I think we tried to do as much as we could to help move the Renaissance forward and to fight that fight in Waihole Valley. And now Charlie and Paul are in the very back end and now they've negotiated new leases and, you know, the next generation of farmers is emerging. Charlie's son, Nicholas, Nick is going to be taking over the farm. And as Charlie is now almost 80 years old, the next generation begins the farming process up there. And I have huge respect for what they do and their giants upon whose shoulders I stand. Can you recall the first time that your ancestry felt a real and meaningful connection to Hawaii? There was a lot of it when I was young. I mean, you know, we had a Welsh, we, we sort of ignored the German part and we emphasized the Welsh part, even though it's a quarter. I don't know why exactly, but we're hugely enthusiastic about our Welsh heritage. Maybe it's because the Welsh had to fight the English so hard to gain home rule back. Um, I think a theme in this. There's a theme in okay. this. Sorry, I didn't mean to Yeah, yeah, in, no, no, perfect. I'll come back out. Yeah. yeah, that's perfect. There's a couple moments. One of them is that when I did go back to the University of Iowa, or go to the University of Iowa, to go back and finish my undergrad, I mentioned earlier that I was really motivated to learn, and I went after it. when I, there were, I was three years there because enough credits had transferred from previous college that I only did three years. And I ended up with this 4.25 GPA, which was crazy. I didn't even know you could go more than four, but I just was hungry. It was almost like Gordian art all over again. I wanted that grade, but I was also hugely motivated to learn. 
and was sucking up everything like a sponge at University of Iowa. But the paradox of that is a hugely traditional school delivering education in exactly the way most colleges do, which is sage on the stage, lecture, 300 kids in the class, all that kind of stuff. So I get to the end of that journey at University of Iowa. And at that point, I was fed up and I'm like, I can't, I have one more class to take in the history department, my final class period. And I'm like, I can't do it. I can't sit in a lecture class for a whole semester. So I went to my history department chair and I, I just begged him and I said, please let me do an independent project on my own. And he's like, okay, go for it. And so I didn't have to go to class, but I got class credit for it. So what I did was I spent the entire semester in the University of Iowa library researching my Welsh heritage. And the theme that emerged out of that that you've acknowledged here is fight. Like the Welsh fought tooth and nail over hundreds of years to eventually gain home rule back, I think it was in 1994, meaning that they were able to gain governance over their own affairs as a sovereign country within the United Kingdom. And so my immersion into that story, most especially about how the Welsh language was reclaimed through sometimes really small things like, what is the language when you go to get your driver's license renewed? So in Hawaii now, like there has been a strong movement to have multiple languages acknowledged, including Hawaiian. If you go bleep money out of a first Hawaiian bank machine, you get the Olelo Hawaii screen first, or you get to choose whether, I mean, that's amazing, right? So I do this independent study. I learn about this great fight, but I'm still doing it in the context of my family, because even though I'm in Iowa, I'm still deeply connected to my family back home. So what was happening back home? My dad was in the middle of a titanic fight against nuclear weapons, the proliferation of nuclear weapons. He's the co-founder, I believe, of the Hawaii chapter of Physicians for Social Responsibility. Their argument was there's no medical response to the dropping of a nuclear weapon. Don't think that the medical community can help us if a bomb drops above Pearl Harbor it will decimate the entire city and there will be no medical response. So he spent the entire last like 15 years of his practice and his life fighting that fight, working locally, nationally, and internationally to try to raise awareness around that. That was all happening while I was at Iowa. So I am studying my Welsh heritage, learning about that fight, and also thinking really deeply about what was happening with the latter portion of the Hawaiian Renaissance. Because at this point, Hukulea had already done remarkable things. It had gone to Tahiti. It was before it went to Rapa Nui. It hadn't completed the, the triangle yet, but it had done already remarkable things. And it had elevated so much about what was beautiful about Native Hawaiian culture and Pacific Islander culture and all that. So I think the point there that you've raised this context is everything. And I've lived my life through a series of contexts. So every chapter that I described early on, each chapter has its own context of something that was happening in my life. And out of that come these remarkable people whose journeys very much influenced me, including my dad. I mean, I actually screened a film that my dad had commissioned about what would happen if a nuclear bomb dropped a mile above Pearl Harbor. He had a local filmmaker, Puhi Pao, make a film about that. And my dad was the narrator of that film. I screened it in Iowa. 
to a community in my little house in Iowa City. And I said, you know, this is Pearl Harbor in Hawaii, but it could be like Des Moines. You know, there's no medical response to that. So, right, context. I was kind of carrying the spirit in each iteration as I went forward. And I think over time, that sense of making a contribution to the greater good has been part of that all the way along. A lot of failures along the way, a lot of setbacks along the way, but it's a a lovely thought as I approach 65 that I'm starting to get maybe a little bit good at making that contribution. And it's mostly through my podcast and elevating the stories of these remarkable 110 educators and education leaders from around the world who are just like knocking it out of the park in terms of engaging kids in the way that I wasn't engaged except for Doc, Gordy, Art, and Dr. Pfeffer. That's who they are. They're the iterations, the reincarnations, although not Doc's still alive. So is Art. I'm not sure about Gordy. kind of lost touch with him. But, you know, they're these educators that I'm highlighting in many ways, I'm highlighting them because they are who those guys were to me. And I want their stories out there to help influence the bigger picture of what it means to reimagine education here in 2023. So it's making a lot more sense to me now, like who you are. One of my favorite quotes is from this guy. His name is Resma Menachem. He wrote a book called My Grandmother's Hands, which is about how generational traumas pass through the mm -hmm. body through generations. Yeah. He's an African-American guy. Yeah. And uh, the quote is, trauma decontextualized in a people looks like culture. Trauma decontextualized in a person looks like a personality. Trauma decontextualized in a family looks like family traits. And then I added in my own, which was trauma decontextualized in a company looks like company culture. Hmm. So now getting the, the context around all of these things around you, I mean, everything makes complete sense. And I think brings us now to the podcast hmm. because the fight, fight, fight that is more or less in your history, in your blood yeah. and in the time that you're coming up, it, do you feel like the podcast is a fight or is the podcast a different energy? Wow. What a great question. So there's a little bit of context and background that has to come first. Good. While I was teaching, I wanted to be involved in the what was called then the reforming of education. Unfortunate term because reform has all these negative connotations and even denotation as well. So the Rapun fight at times, I think, has come across to some folks as like a righteous fight, like, oh boy, these guys are a pain in the ass. Um and so I struggled for a long time with that kind of righteous approach. Like I'm right and you're wrong. And so while I was teaching um, at Punahou and then after Punahou, I was off for a year and I worked for the governor's office on volunteerism. And then I got hired at La Pietra. Right in that moment uh, was when I started to work on my master's in education and ed foundations. And so I tried to be involved in uh, the education reform movement, but in a weird kind of, you know, here's Josh standing beside Josh watching what Josh is doing. I kept looking at Josh and going, oh, man, that's not very effective. It's so righteous. It's so my way or the highway. You know, this is the way education needs to be. And I was so still young 
even though I wasn't young and naive and just stupid at that point. I didn't know enough to be righteous at all. And so it wasn't very effective and I didn't gain any ground in it. And I got frustrated with it and I kind of was out of that loop for a while. So what ends up happening is that I end up teaching at La Pietra. And so I'm in the teaching at La Pietra is where I found what I was looking for, which is what the kind of education that I really wanted our kids to have. And I, I was doing it. I talk about, I was really lucky. I had the outermost classroom on that campus at La Pietra on Diamond Head. And so all the stuff that I was doing was out of sight, out of mind. Admin never knew what I was doing down there. And I was doing some crazy stuff, YouTube channel for my classroom. They never knew about that. I wrote the first Wikipedia article on La Pietra. They never knew about that. I wanted to be a Wikipedian as soon as I found out about it. All this kind of stuff, project-based, challenge-based, problem-based, authentic teaching and learning was going on down there. So when I em emerged out of that, the next step was discovering this film most likely to succeed. And I'd, I'd finished up at my time at Iolani, which was kind of frustrating as well because very, very traditional school. And now I was starting to get ahead of steam about what I really thought education could be. And so after I saw most likely to succeed and started doing these conversations to answer your question, that's when the fight became a different fight. I'm definitely fighting. I'm fighting as hard as I can. And every episode of the podcast is part of that fight, but it's a different kind of fight. And I, I guess I tried to walk on the humble side of the street here and say that I found the non-righteous way of moving forward. It's not my way or the highway. There are just so many variations on this theme of reimagining education, not reforming education, that now my job in the fight is to just elevate the victories as we go forward. The one stones, the, you know, the dream houses, the Liger Leadership Academy in Cambodia. I can go on and on for each of these episodes somewhere in Kentucky. Carmen Coleman comes out on Sunday, what she did in the, in the Jefferson County Public Schools over the last few years is remarkable. 100,000 students are now getting opportunities just like I had with Doc and Art and Gordy and Dr. Pfeffer. And so, yes, it's a fight, but now it's a fight where I know that I have a role to play in it, and that role is to elevate the stories of truly remarkable teaching and learning that really engages students and catapults them towards the David that's inside of them already. And so that's how the fight is going. That's, I guess that's, that's my way of responding now. It's no less intense of a fight. I just feel like maybe I've gotten a little bit smarter about what, how to do the fighting, which is to fight with evidence, to fight with stories, to be a storyteller and let that be my fight as I go forward. Yeah. Okay. So if you can resonate with that feeling of fighting, right, that, moving forward, the intensity of that. What's the emotion under that that drives it? Another great question, which is to say, or to or ask, emotions. what's motivating you to do this? Because yeah, from emotions comes motivation. Mm -hmm. I want to know, <laughs> as you go into like your heart, what emotions drive that fight, the intensity in that fight? If you ask my wife, Cheryl, who I tell... Every two weeks, 
Shh, you got to be really quiet. 6 a.m. I'm recording a podcast episode. She rolls her eyes like, oh, God, me and the cats, we got to be quiet in the morning. What happens, I generally record at 6 a.m. I'm done by 7.15. What she would describe to you is Josh walking on clouds, comes bursting out of his little home studio, and he's just like over the moon. And it happens every single time. I think her description of that is an answer to your question. When I feel like I've done a great job in helping someone tell their story of creativity and imagination and innovation and joy and learning, that just puts gas in my tank. And then I plunge. So it's a little bit of a roller coaster of a life. And I keep going from one moment to another whether it's a podcast episode or connecting one educator with another and now they're working together, one in Maine and one in Hawaii or whatever, it's moments like that. I'm going in and out of those moments. So emotionally, it's a little bit of a roller coaster, but somehow or other, I have found a way to walk through that life pretty steady. I feel good about that, Evan. Okay. I feel good. I think, that. okay, so what I heard on that was that that when, when Cheryl hears you doing your podcast and you come out of it, you're at a intense high. Yeah. Right. And then you, you kind of come back down from that. You do it again and you kind of ride yep. this wave. So the question that I have is, pain is this podcast filling for you or what need is it filling for you? Because there's a need that goes unfilled that creates distress of some sort that says, okay, now I'm going to push it through. I would, my righteous peace will come out or I will do this podcast and we have a great connection and I'm getting these things out there. And then this one settles down, right? What, what is it? That's what I'm wondering. Yeah, I think it's a fair question. I mean, there's a little bit of Freudian elements. Oh, we're going straight into those areas. Into these, in these areas for sure. Youngest of seven kids. Okay. By the time I came along, Four years after my next oldest brother, I think it was an afterthought or a mistake in some ways. I mean, my mom was already in her mid-40s already, and I can't imagine that they had intended. And so little Josh, maybe as an afterthought, and all of the successes that my brothers have achieved, all of them, most especially the things that they've made— in their lives, whether it's growing something or whatever. My brother Tommy is a pathologist, all of that kind of stuff, right? David, who lives on the Big Island and is the most amazing maker person I've ever known in my life. Jack of all trades. He can build and do anything, fix anything. Who was I in all of that? And I don't think there was any answer to that for most of my life. I have no regrets. I've lived a really interesting and varied life with a bunch of chapters that I would never give back because, you know, being a chef or being a hotel manager, these are all things, right? But I think in the family dynamic, it was always Josh, the baby of the family until recently when I think I finally found my place in that whole thing. And so maybe a way to answer it would be, would my mother and father be proud of me? And I think they would. I think my mom, especially my dad, he was like, it's kind of a, he wasn't a religious guy, but I always saw him as kind of a Calvinist. Like, you know, when we would row across the bay, Evan, all 
six boys in the rowboat with my father in the back, like he was some kind of Roman centurion. Row, you know, it'd be like, like that. I think he loved that kind of thing. It's like, I have command of a small army of six boys and I'm going to make them work. Like that was my dad. So he didn't say, I'm proud of you. I don't ever recall him saying that. I know he was, but my mom, that, that was a different story. We lost her early. She was in her early 60s when she died of cancer, 1981, I think. But would they both be happy with the work that I'm doing, proud of the work that I'm doing? I think so, because their whole lives were about elevating the work of other people and working with those other people to get stuff done that would make the community a better place. But I think you're right there, which is as the youngest of seven, not totally sure whether it's planned or not. And then your brothers and so on are just like, yeah, Harvard, Hamilton, just just everything. Their accomplishments are, are just so much. Yeah. Right. So when would be the earliest that young Josh would have felt that I'm not enough? Pretty early. Pretty and the early. reason I'm saying felt is because, you know, prior to like two years old or so, you have no words. So, no. Yeah. so when is the earliest young Josh felt that? I, I remember I would scream and cry going to the first grade at Ben Parker Elementary in Kaneohe and my mother trying to get me, you know, I just hated going to school in the beginning. I think elementary was so four or okay. Five, four yeah, or five years four old. Four or five years old. I think... Well, actually, you've prompted me to remember a very specific story, which is in the seventh grade. Sorry, Punahou, I'm going to throw you under the bus here. In the seventh grade, Ed Romju, my seventh grade English teacher, did a spelling bee for the entire seventh and eighth grade. And I don't remember at what point in the year, Evan, it was. It was probably a midpoint or something like that. And somehow or other, I was the first student called up to spell a word. And we're all readers and we're all writers, us rapoons, but mostly we're terrible spellers. Don't know why, something in the DNA. And my word was helmet, which I still can't spell. It's either hellmate, H-E-L-L-M-A-T-E, or H-E-L-M-A-T, or something like that. That was my word. And so the first kid in the entire seventh and eighth grade misses the word, sits down, done. And now I got to sit for hours and watch other people spell. I still remember that to that day. Uh, Sorry, Ed, you're long gone, but I would call you up on charges. I would charge you. That was a criminal offense right there to do that. To put you up because he knew that you couldn't spell? No. That whole process to me is bankrupt. Mm. If I had no preparation time and if I had motivation, if Mm. I was entering a spelling bee, No kid who goes through the current spelling bee, which is kind of fun when you watch it happen, those kids prepare like crazy. It's like going to the Super Bowl or the World Series. You don't just stick any old kid up there on a stage and have them with no preparation spell a word, even a simple word like that. To me, that's just cruelty. And I'm angry about it. You can tell right here. I'm angry about that. To this day, I was humiliated in front of the entire Punahou 7th and 8th grade. And I'll, I'll never forgive Ed for that moment, for putting me in that moment. So that's that very early moment where I just like, what, what place did I have at that point? I was a dumbass at that point. 
and also by that time, you know, my mom and dad were kind of like done having kids and they'd raised all these kids and I was an afterthought and, you know, so on and so forth. So I think maybe the first moment where that narrative started to change a little bit, and I know you'll find this curious, is that w there was a moment when I was a senior at Punahou when all of my brothers and my sister were away, quote unquote. And so I was living at home with my mom and dad for the very first time. And we had a blast for that whole year. I was growing a garden. I was providing all the produce for our meals, the three of us every night. And, you know, just had a wonderful senior year at Punahou. Didn't study very much, but at that point I had lots of friends. And, you know, my mom, after a football game, she was so exhausted at that point. I remember she came up to me after she'd helped make the, you know, Portuguese bean soup and we we're eating after the football game, the team. And she handed me the keys to the car. She said, don't drink and drive. I'm done. And that was it. That was the end really of her parenting of me. I was to, after that we were friends. She wasn't parenting me anymore. That's when the narrative started to change is that I really got to know my mom and dad. So are, are there pain points along the way where I still felt out of sorts? Yeah, ab absolutely. Were there points where I felt like when I became a chef, my dad was pretty stoked about that. And I won a couple of awards and a dessert com uh, contest and things like that. So you can see where the narrative becomes really interesting yep. after that. But you're right there. My whole life has been a slow, steady process of not being the baby of the family anymore and growing comfortable in that skin. That makes sense. Yeah. So if you take back to, let's say, four-year-old Josh, right? And you have four-year-old Josh right here. <laughs> what do you tell four-year-old Josh? What does four-year-old Josh need? I would say to Josh, you are valued. And I am with you for your whole journey. Come hell or high water. I am with you through this whole journey. I will be your guide, your sponsor, your mentor, your coach. I will be all of those things to you, but ultimately it's your own journey that you're going to carve out. I can tell you, Evan, the specific moment when that narrative changed very dramatically for me, and it actually wasn't that long ago. It was only eight years ago. When I saw Most Likely to Succeed for the first time, and I screened it for the first time, I was with some other partners at a co-working space down in Kaka'ako Agora back then. It was okay as a screening. And people were really amazed by the film and all that, but we had a panel and it kind of sucked the air out of the room with the panel of experts and all that. And I thought, oh, you know, this was good, but it wasn't, it wasn't great. And at that point I was having conversations with my brother, John, who was still the executive director of Key Project on the Windward side. Amazing organization, 25 years, I think that he was the executive director. So we partnered up and I said, how about if we do a screening at Key Project? I want to come home and do a screening there. Long story short, oh my God, 175 people in the main hall there. We screened the film. I set up this wild and crazy post-screen protocol where like 175 people around these circle tables, eight, seven, eight people to a table. And we started a discussion that went long into the night. And that moment was my coming home moment to my home community and doing a screening. My whole family was there. They helped check people in. John 
was my main partner. He, you know, Key Project funded the AV that made the whole thing really work and the whole thing. And I felt like, okay, now Josh has his place in the family and he's fighting the good fight, just like everybody in the family is fighting the good fight. And now he can just keep on going and doing those things. So I would want to say to four-year-old Josh, there is this moment, there will be these moments in your life where you're going to feel like you've accomplished something, latch on to those moments, but realize that those moments are a product of lots of other people who have provided inputs to you, have made you who you are. That's what I would say. Okay. And it's a good place for us to kind of wrap it up. I just want to acknowledge you, Josh Rapun. You've worked extremely hard on yourself and helping improve education and the experience for countless others. Most likely you'll never meet them, yeah. is what my mind tells me. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't mean that you're not doing good work. Yeah. So for you, Josh, older Josh, <laughs> I want to acknowledge you. Yeah. For that. Yeah. And I see that David in this marble. Mm, Thank you, Evan. As, as I mentioned before, I'll turn 65 October 18th, 2023, kind of a milestone moment because in a sense, I'm not the baby of the family anymore, but I'm still pretty young. And at 65, that means I got decades of time ahead of me to keep refining this thing. And I feel so good to know that. I mean, the God's willing knock on wood that I will remain healthy and happy and, or or healthy to be able to keep doing that work. But yeah, it's nice. It's a nice feeling to come up to that moment. So I appreciate the opportunity to unpack all this with you today. That was fun. That was super fun. Super fun. If you resonate with Greater Good Radio, please join our community at www.greatergoodradio.com where you can get access to exclusive content and offerings. Hope to see you soon.